Let's all go to the Life Cafe. Let's all go to the Life Cafe. Let's all go to the Life Cafe. To get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. The chocolate bars and the candy. So let's all go to the Life Cafe. To get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the Life Cafe. To get ourselves a treat. Now to pause and refresh. For your convenience, we have an attractive refreshment stand in the Life Cafe. With buttered popcorn, gold and good and hot from the popper, your favorite candies, wholesome and rich with a flavor treat for every taste, ice cream and other good things to eat, plus delicious Coca-Cola. So bright and bracing with the tang and tingle unt by any other beverage. Enjoy ice cold Coca-Cola at our Life Cafe right now. Wasn't that awesome? Well, Merry Christmas. Okay, that was pretty lame. Let's try that again. Merry Christmas. Okay, much better. Welcome to Abundant Life. It's great to have you with us today, and a special welcome to those that are watching online. And again, this is Sunday before Christmas, so I'm wearing Christmas socks, and, uh, and the message today is on Elf. I'm just grateful I don't have to speak in that Elf costume. Uh, although my wife did dress up like an elf for the second service. She had like suede green cowboy boots and green tights, but it's like, you're too smoking hot to be an elf. So. <clears throat> but we've been, uh, we're concluding this series on Flixmas where we're taking classic Christmas mu- movies and Pastor George began with talking about Charlie Brown Christmas and simplicity and then Christmas vacation and messy families and the genealogy of Jesus. Last week, Pastor Jeff talked about Home Alone and loneliness, and today we've saved the best movie for last, which is Elf. Take a look at some highlights. New Line Cinema proudly presents a little holiday story. One Christmas Eve, Santa Claus got an unexpected gift of his own. (laughs) What in the name of Sam Hill? 30 years later. Let's recite the code of the elves, shall we? The best way to spread Christmas cheer is singing loud for all to hear. Buddy's discovering who he really is. You're not like the rest of us. I was sure when you cracked six feet that it would come up. My bad. You're not an elf. He's taking a journey to find the family he's never known in a place where he finally fits in. Boy. And nothing's going to stop him. Sorry, your car's pretty. Will Ferrell is Elf. Hey, what's your name? Does someone need a hug? God! <laughs> Nutcracker! Catch the holiday spirit. Just trying to hug you. How many of you have seen the movie Elf? Okay, so I realized that I like movies where I like the characters. And so you can't help but like Buddy the Elf. Will Ferrell plays a six foot four inch elf, gets, you know, raised by elves or whatever. But 
you know, he's perpetually cheery. He's naively optimistic. You just can't help but like him. And one of my favorite pastimes is to quote movie lines, especially out of context. And this movie has some great lines to quote. For example, like, uh, Santa, I know him. Anytime you go to the mall and you see a department store Santa, you can quote that line. Or uh, one of my favorite scenes is when a buddy sees the fake Santa at Gimbel's and he says, you don't smell like Santa, you smell like beef and cheese. <laughs> and then he says, you sit on a throne of what? Lies. Lies. That is a quote, you know, you can, you can use. Uh, this past fall, I had friends say, the Oregon State Beavers are going to actually be a good football team. And in retrospect, I look back and say, oh, you sit on a throne of lies. <laughs> Not that I'm bitter. But one of my favorite lines comes near the beginning of the film, and a little context is necessary. So as you saw, there's a baby, crawls into Santa's bag, gets accidentally taken to the North Pole, where he's raised in Santa's workshop by a bunch of elves. And then when he turns 30, Papa Elf tells him that he's not an elf, he's actually human. And so he sets off on this adventure uh, to find his father to a strange, faraway place called New York City. And in this one scene, he's saying goodbye to his little animal friends, and in classic stop-action animation, the narwhal says, Bye, buddy. Hope you find your dad. (laughs) Hope you find your dad. So Buddy sets off on this adventure. He travels through the seven levels of the candy cane forest and past the sea of swirly, twirly gumdrops and then through the Lincoln Tunnel. And in New York City, he finds his dad, a man named Walter Hobbs. And Walter Hobbs is a corporate guy, works for a publishing house. He's no-nonsense. He's a workaholic. And he doesn't have time for Buddy to mess with his life. Buddy has notions that he's gonna, they're going to make snow angels and they're going to snuggle and his dad's not having any of it. And so finally his dad asked him to get out of his life. Uh, they end up having a happy reconciliation. But the movie's heartwarming and funny. And that theme, though, of finding your dad is a significant one. Because it's a story we all live out. Now, I'm not talking about candy being one of the four food groups or that you were raised by a bunch of elves. But here's the deal. We're all in search of our father. We've all traveled this journey as humans We are created with a deep longing to connect with our creator. We're spiritual beings, and God created us in a way to connect with him. And he created us so that if we're not connected, we feel an emptiness as a result. That's how God has wired us. He's created us for relationship with him. There is a God-shaped hole in every human heart, your heart and in my heart. And you can shove all manner of things into that heart, But if it's not God, it's still going to leave you feeling empty and unfulfilled. G.K. Chesterton put it this way, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. We have this need for transcendence, to be a part of something that is bigger than ourselves. And life is a journey to find your dad. That first Christmas proves how much God wants to have relationship with us by going to the extreme measures of sending Jesus so that we can have a relationship with our Father in heaven. That's what Jesus came to do. I hope you find your dad. But when we start talking about dads and relationship with Father, I'm sure that there are mixed reactions. Some of you may have had awesome dads and some not so much. So the question is this, what is it that you think about when you think of God? What picture is your default setting? A.W. Tozer said, what comes to your mind when you think about God? It's the most important thing about us. 
So here's the question. What is your picture of God? I heard about a little boy who was in an art class, and they're all working on their projects, and he's drawing a picture with great enthusiasm. And the teacher stopped by and said, well, what are you doing? He said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And she said, well, nobody knows what God looks like. He said, they will when I get done. (laughs) See, what is it that comes to your mind when you think about God? I would suggest that this might be the most important thing, the most important topic of your life. Because what you think about God determines how you think about yourself and how you see other people. It determines what you think your purpose and place in life is and your destiny. It determines how you live your life. How do you, what's your picture of God? How do you see him? And I'm also convinced that all of us have misconceptions about God that need to be deprogrammed if we're to have a healthy, realistic view of God. See, and so I want to talk about the three most common misconceptions. This is not an exhaustive list. It's not all the misconceptions that are out there. But I want you to notice that these misconceptions are not patently false. There's an element of truth to each one. But this... This has been distorted to the point of exaggeration and caricature. And so the first one is this in honor of the season is God equals Santa Claus. The picture here is of God as a cosmic genie or a butler in the sky who exists to grant us our every wish. And see, the truth behind that is that God is a giving God. That's his nature. And he delights in giving children good gifts. Matthew 7, verse 9, Jesus says, Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? See, as a, du- as a dad, I loved to give my kids good things, good gifts. My kids got to call me Daddy Warbucks. They knew that I was the one to come to when it came to stuff like that. And as much fun as that was, I found it's even more fun to give my grandchildren cool stuff. My goal as a grandparent is to have the grandchildren cry when they leave my house. (laughs) If they do that, I know I've done my job. But here's a newsflash. God is not your grandfather in heaven. What do you call children who get everything they want? Spoil, that's right. God has no grandchildren. We're all children of God. His job is not to give us everything we want but he does delight in giving us what we need. Well, then secondly, another misconception of God is that God equals Krampus. Now, Krampus is the antithesis of Santa Claus. In German folklore, Krampus is scary. He's pictured as having horns and a long tongue, and he carries a birch switch with which to swat naughty children. So during the Christmas season, St. Nick rewards those who've been good with gifts, Krampus punishes kids who've been naughty. But see, the idea behind this is that God is a cosmic cop. He's the judge that sits up in heaven. And this is almost a universal construct. Versus almost virtually everybody has at least an element of this view of God. Because the truth is that God does punish sin. That's the truth behind it. But see, don't make, don't make the leap because God punishes sin. Don't come to the conclusion that Anything bad in your life that happens is because God is mad at you and is punishing you. And I find a lot of people who have been raised in organized religion feel that way. I know of one woman who said that, that she had had an abortion when she was 21 years old and she still felt guilty about it decades later. She said, 
that she worried that one of her three children would die because she killed her first baby. See, that is not how God is. God is out to punish you and make your life miserable. The truth is that God's heart is not to punish. In the Old Testament, the prophets warned of judgment. But why would God go to all the bother of warning of judgment if he only wanted to punish? See, punishment is not his heart. He, goes, he takes every precaution necessary to keep us from being punished. Jesus could not be more clear when he said in John 12, verse 47, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. See, that's God's heart. God doesn't want anybody to perish. And he's taking extreme measures so that we don't have to. God has infinitely more patience and grace than I could ever muster because I have the technology to see evil people prospering and I can question God's goodness. Say, God, where is your goodness? Where is your justice? You're blessing this person. What's up with that? And then I read scriptures like Romans 2, verse 4. Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? Circle that phrase, God's kindness leads you toward repentance. See, God's loving kindness and patience is so much greater than ours. God blesses evil people so that they will repent. I would have never thought of that. Another proof that God's heart is not to punish is that he forgives when we repent. He doesn't have to forgive, but he does. His heart is not to punish. And then thirdly, the last misconception I want to talk about today is God is missing in action. Now, he may have created the universe in the past and done some cool, miraculous things, but in the present, he's largely uninvolved. He's passive, he's different, indifferent, he's distant. He might be all-powerful and all-knowing, but for reasons he doesn't tell us, he doesn't come through when we need him. And the Bible is realistic when it describes his struggle, because you're not the first ones to have ever thought it this way. Psalm 13, verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? See, everybody in this room has experienced disappointment and pain of one form or another. I know I've had my share. A son who was born with autism and then killed in a car accident. Nothing in life prepares you for the prospect of burying your own children. It's not natural. And if you've walked with the Lord for any length of time, sooner or later, you're going to have to come to terms with this reality Job experienced his share of pain and sorrow. He lost his vast wealth, his estate. All 10 of his children were killed in an accident, and then his wife walked out and left him. And Job asked to speak to God. He said, God, I don't get this. Why has all this bad stuff happened to me? And God appears to Job in the whirlwind. And he said, Job, you've got a few questions you want to ask me. Well, let me ask you a few questions to see if you're qualified to hear the answer. He says, Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Where were, you, where were you when I flung the heavens into the sky? Can you make Pleiades shine in spring or Orion stride across the winter sky? In other words, Job, how are you at running the universe? And in the presence of God, Job falls on his face and he worships God. And he never, God never does get around to answering any of Job's questions. Because you see, in the presence of God, all of our questions become irrelevant and all of our needs are met. And at the end of the day, I don't know why pain and suffering happen. All I know is it's a whole lot better to be in God's presence and have him in your life than not have him. 
What remains is our faith in God. That's what's eternal. I might not understand it all, but I'm going to let God be God because I'd really mess things up a whole lot worse than they are if I was running the show. Well, where do these concepts come from? My observation is that these misconceptions come from life experiences. What we experience and go through in life colors our perception of God. And the problem with these misconceptions is that they are unworthy of God. I think to be technically precise, they're unworthy God concepts because they're based on our flawed perceptions. And so where can we get an accurate view of God? It's, it's from his word. And this is, this is the new paradigm about God that Jesus brought to the table. And the concept that he taught was this, God is our father in heaven. Now, on 2,000 years later, that might not sound like news, but see, no other religion pictures God like this. Even the Jews in the Old Testament didn't relate to God in this way. They had a view of God that emphasized his transcendence. He is holy. He is majestic. He is great. He is so great that they wouldn't even pronounce his name. Jeremiah 1.9, God says, I'm a father to Israel. But that was a metaphor. It wasn't a name. See, Calling God Father was far and away Jesus' favorite name for God. It wasn't even a close second. In the Gospel of John alone, Jesus calls God his Father 156 times. So that's the new teaching that Jesus brought about God, that he's a father, but he's not your earthly father. He is a perfect father in heaven. As he says in Matthew 6, 9, this is how you should pray, our Father in heaven. See, God's not an impersonal force. He's a father. I can relate to a father. I can't have a relationship with a force. But here's an important safety tip. God is not your earthly dad. He is your father in heaven. See, my dad is a good man. I learned a lot of positive attributes from God by his example, like God is faithful. God provides. But see, as much as I love my dad, he is not the standard. God is. God's the model, not the other way around. And I hear guys say, well, if God is anything like my, dad, my father, thanks, but no thanks. See, that's why Jesus is careful to say, God is our father in heaven. As our father, he's personal. In heaven, he is perfect. I hope you find your dad. Well, here's the good news. Galatians 3.26, for you are all children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. See, as we believe in Jesus, we become children of God. God sent Jesus so that we could become his children. How cool is that? No matter what your earthly parents are like or were like, you can find your dad. The Bible says that God is a father to the fatherless. And when we believe in Jesus, God places us in his family. Regardless of whether your earthly father was good, bad, or anywhere in between, God puts you in his family. And if you listed all the best attributes of earthly fathers, guess what? All the best attributes are part of who God is. And so <clears throat> I want to talk briefly about my top three attributes of God. And here they go. First is God is powerful. We're talking about the strength of God here. Now, as a kid, did you ever argue about whose dad was stronger? You know, whose dad was bigger? My dad can beat up your dad. No way. My dad's a ninja. Well, my dad trains ninjas. <laughs> we argue about this because we want a father who's strong physically and emotionally. We want a father who is capable. 2 Chronicles 20, verse 6 says, O Lord, God of our ancestors, you alone are the God who's in heaven. You are ruler of all the kingdoms of the earth. You are powerful and mighty. No one can stand against you. 
See, here's the deal. Your father is a rock. And anytime the word rock is mentioned to refer to God in the Old Testament, that's a metaphor for strength. He is strong. He's stronger than any father. He's never been helpless. He's never had his hands full. He's never dropped the ball. Never couldn't handle it. Never out of control. Never weak or sick. He's never called in sick a day in his, in his life. And so given that, it's amazing how many things we try to take on ourselves. See, we've got this amazing, powerful father and there's a whole lot of things in life that we can't fix and we can't handle, but we still try to keep doing it ourselves. And God says, hey, can I give you a hand here? And we think, no, you go drive the universe. I got this when clearly we don't got it. And see, there are so many things in life that you can't control, things you can't fix and people you can't change. That's why the angel told Mary that with God, nothing is impossible because we have a powerful God. And maybe you've got a few giants in your life that you're facing, bullies that try to intimidate with fear, bad health news, or I know people who are going through chemo, problems with kids, tough financial straits, loss of a job, your work or your marriage isn't working out the way you hoped, you can't kick an addiction, or maybe there's a bully called anxiety or panic, depression or sadness that stands outside your door ready to kick your tail when you get out of bed in the morning. David was a shepherd boy who took on the giant Goliath. And he says in the Psalms, I will keep my eyes always on the Lord. Not on the giant, but on the Lord. See, if you've got giants and bullies you're facing, you don't have to say to God, hey, God, I got this. Because he can handle it. His shoulders are bigger than yours. He is my powerful dad. He's flung the stars into space. He invented DNA. He can raise the dead. He can move mountains. He can take down any giant that stands against you. That's your dad. He's a rock. He's stronger and bigger than Hans and Franz. He's got your past. He's got your future. He's got your back. I hope you find your dad. Well, secondly, God is present. Now, as a pastor, I have the privilege of officiating funerals on occasion. And one of the most sacred moments is when an adult stands up at a memorial service and says something effective. You know what I really appreciate about my mom or my dad? And they say something like, they were always there for me. That is an amazing legacy right there. God as our Heavenly Father is not missing in action. His promise is his presence. This classic Christmas verse, Matthew 1, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Emmanuel, it means literally God with us. God is present. He is with you. He's not MIA. He's not missing in action. See, if your dad was either absent physically or emotionally, know this. Your father is present. He will never leave you or forsake you. My middle daughter, Danielle, is a writer, and a couple weeks ago, she wrote a blog, uh, and it was the Brutally Honest Christmas Card. And, you know, typical family Christmas cards is our lives are perfect, look how perfect, you know, we are, the Facebook facade. Well, this is the opposite of that. About, you know, it's just vulnerable and transparent about all the struggles that they've been going through recently. But she looked back and she, she recognized that, that God never left. He is with her every step of the way. And she had no idea that the, the brutally honest Christmas card would go viral. More than 500,000 people have viewed it. And uh, Vox.com just bought it and they want to reprint it. But, you know, it resonates because this is where we live. You know, life is tough but we've got God's presence to keep us through. 
And a simple prayer I like to pray is, God, I need you now. Come be near me. Psalm 139 talks about everywhere I go, there is God. If I go to the farthest ends of the earth, if I go to the lowest place or the highest place, wherever I get up and down, God is there. See, he's not out of touch. He's not distant. He's not unaware. He's not an absentee father or a deadbeat dad. He's never too busy. He's not, he's not embarrassed by who you've turned out to be. He's not annoyed with you. He'll never neglect you. He'll never abandon you. He'll never abuse you. He's there when you wake up in the morning and when you lay your head on the pillow at night. Guess what? He's there. He's there with you in a hospital bed. He's there with you in the ICU waiting room. He's there with you when you have to go through rehab, when you're at gravesides and wedding aisles. He's there with you during chemotherapy. He's there with you when you have something difficult to say. When you ask for forgiveness, he's there. When others walk out on you, he does not. When you take a vacation, he doesn't. When you take a nap, he doesn't need an espresso to get started in the morning or a Red Bull in the afternoon to stay awake. He never sleeps. That's our God. He's always behind the scenes working, always with you. He is our father. That is his promise. That's his character. That's who he is. I hope you find your dad. It changes everything about you and how you think about life. We are in the Advent season. And to be theologically precise, Advent is not the same as Christmas. And the difference is this. Advent is the longing for the coming of Jesus. Because we live in a broken down, fallen, toxic world. And we long to see all things made right, to see peace and justice and redemption. Advent is the longing for the coming of Jesus. O come, O come, Emmanuel is an example of an Advent song. But Christmas is the celebration that Jesus has come and that the restoration of all things has begun. Joy to the world. I hope you find your dad. May the promise of Emmanuel, his presence, be yours. And then last but not least, God is personal. Now, this is to say that God is love. Your father is love. It's not that he tries to be loving on occasion. This is his basic essence and his nature. He can be no other. His love is relentless, and it is unconditional. 1 John 3, verse 1. How great is the love the father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Underline that word lavish. God has lavished his love on us. He is extravagant. In his love. And see, if you get nothing else, get this. The most important thing about you is that you are a much loved child of God. That is your basic identity. And the other things we tack onto identity are the things like we put on business cards or on, on Facebook. Those pale in comparison and importance to that. Zephaniah 3, verse 17. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save he will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. And right there in that verse are all three concepts that we've been talking about. God is with you. He is present. He is mighty to save. He is powerful. And he is personal. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. See, God delights in you. He is for you. And I know I have a hard time believing that because I know the struggles I have. I know the temptations I face. I know that I don't measure up, and I'm pretty sure God has an idea as well. And so I figured I'm probably a disappointment to God. That's what I want to think, but that's not what God's word says. It says he delights in you and in me. See, because God's love isn't based on performance. It's unconditional. And God only wants to know how much you are loved. 
hoping that you will choose to love him in return. Understand that and everything else in your life will fall into place. But if you miss that, nothing else in your life will make a difference or matter. The year was 1975 and USC and Ohio State were playing in the Rose Bowl. John McKay was the coach of USC as a Hall of Fame coach. His son, J.K. McKay, was the starting wide receiver. He's an All-American wide receiver. And the game had the most dramatic ending in the history of the Rose Bowl because on the final play of the game, with time expired, USC quarterback Pat Hayden threw a 38-yard touchdown pass to J.K. McKay, and USC won 18-17. And after the game, Coach McKay was asked, your son is a Rhodes Scholar, he's an All-American athlete, and he just caught the winning pass in the Rose Bowl. Are you proud of him? And Coach McKay never hesitated. He said, he doesn't have to be a Rhodes Scholar or an All-American athlete. He doesn't have to catch the winning touchdown in the Rose Bowl for me to be proud of him. I'm proud of him because he's my son. See, that's how God feels about you. Jeremiah 29, verse 13. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Fred Craddock was a teacher and a preacher back in the day in the South. And on one occasion, he and his wife decided to take a little getaway to Gatlinburg, Tennessee. And he just wanted to relax from the stress of ministry and get away from people. He didn't want to have to talk to anybody and just recharge his batteries for a while. And so he said he and his wife were sitting in a restaurant at a table. And he, they noticed an older gentleman that made his way from table to table in this restaurant, striking up conversations. And sure enough, he made his way to Fred's table and said, my name's Ben, what's yours? And Fred said, well, my name's Fred. And uh, he said, well, what do you do for a living? And so Fred didn't want to have a conversation, so he thought he'd throw him for a loop. He said, I'm a homiletics professor. And the old man said, well, I know what that is. That's a preacher. You're... I have a good preacher story. Mind if I sit down? So he went ahead and sat down and started to tell his own story. He said, I was born in these smoky mountains. I was raised in a small town, and I didn't know who my father was. It was a shameful thing, and nobody ever called me by my name. Fred said, well, what did they call you? He said, that bastard boy. Nobody ever called me Ben. They just called me that. And even if they didn't, I, I could imagine them saying it. There goes that bastard boy. I wonder who his father is. He said, it got so bad that... When he walked down the street, he'd see people coming toward him. He said, you'd cross the street so we wouldn't have to talk to anybody. He said, then one day a new preacher came to town. Everybody was talking about how good he was. And so I went to check him out, and he was good. He said, but I was always the last one to come and the first one to leave. And I'd sit in the very back so I wouldn't have to talk to anybody. But one day I got so caught up in the message that the service ended, and I got caught in the crowd trying to leave. And I was trying to work my way through the crowd when I felt a tap on my shoulder. And I turned around, and there was the preacher. And he asked a question I dreaded to hear all my life. Who is your father? He said, when he asked me that question, it felt like he'd stuck a knife in my heart. But before I could answer, the preacher said, the name of your father is God. God is your father, boy, and don't you ever forget that. And he said, when I realized that God is my father, my whole life changed. And he got up from the table and he wiped a tear away from his eye from telling his own story and he left the restaurant. And immediately the waitress came over to the table and said, do you know who that is? And Fred said, well, some old guy named Ben. She said, that's Ben Hooper, the governor of the state of Tennessee. See, when you realize that God is your father, it changes your life in ways that you can't even imagine. Find God. 
What could be more important than that? And don't settle for anything less. See, religion is a poor substitute for relationship. And God isn't playing hide and seek. His promise is that if we seek him, we will find him. And our lives will be, will be changed forever. And if you've never made God your father, you can do that right now. We're going to pray. And if you have made God your father, will you also pray out loud to support and encourage those that might be praying this for the first time? Will you join me in prayer? God, I place my faith in Jesus. Make me your child. Thank you that you conquered death. Thank you for your presence. And thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen.